Welcome to the Caravan Podcast, a venture of the Herbert and Jane Dwight Working Group on the Middle East and the Islamic World at the Hoover Institution. The Working Group conducts research on the Middle East and U.S. foreign policy. You can read examples of our work at www.hoover.org caravan. These caravan podcasts are a new undertaking, and we intend to produce about two each month. Please follow us. I'm Russell Berman, co-director of the Working Group at Hoover, and today I have the pleasure of speaking with Muhammad Alaganim. Muhammad is a Syrian pro-democracy campaigner and human rights activist. We've recently published an article by Muhammad on the prospects for the Biden administration's Syria policy. You can find it easily on our website. Again, that's www.hoover.org caravan. Muhammad, thanks for joining me today for this discussion. Let's start with some history. In your article, you wrote that both the Obama and Trump administrations struggled to find a coherent Syria policy. Can you break that, that down a bit? Why is Syria so hard for Washington? What factors work against the coherent policy? Hi, uh, Russell. Thanks. Uh, thanks for having me this this morning. Uh, yes, uh, they did. Both administrations did. But I do not want to create the uh, perceptions um, that uh, they had um, that the struggles were one and the same, uh, or that they had the same policy. Because I don't believe that they did. Um, in four years ago, in 2016, when uh, when Obama administration was on its uh, on its way out, we Syrians wanted to see a free and we're hoping to see free and democratic Syria. Uh, were uh, were devastated. Uh, we we had just uh, lost Aleppo. Uh, we call it the citadel of the revolution. And before that, we uh, lost Homs, the uh, capital of the revolution. And we uh, shortly thereafter would lose Dara, the cradle of the revolution. So things were in pretty bad shape. Bashar al-Assad came out um, and uh, declared victory. So did Putin. He came out and he gave a victory speech uh, and, and claimed that he helped Bashar al-Assad uh, win the war uh, in, in Syria. And the regime immediately uh, launched an international campaign to have the sanctions on him, on the regime, um, on Bashar al-Assad, and on the regime itself uh, lifted and for normalization of relations and for Bashar al-Assad to be readmitted into the Arab League. So as if, you know, nothing had happened uh, the past, uh, the past uh, eight years. So, uh, th so things were, were not, we were not in, in a good place uh, four years ago. Uh, under the Trump administration, things uh, were, uh, were, uh, were different. Uh, now, President Trump himself, um, didn't seem to care one way or the other, uh, judging by some of his rhetoric. For example, he um, repeat, multiple times described Syria as um, nothing but sand and death, uh, arguing that we don't have a strategic interest in Syria. However, uh, he was keen uh, not to be seen as, as uh, his predecessor on Syria, as President Obama. So uh, he did a, a number of very important things. Number one, he actually punished Bashar al-Assad for use of uh, uh, chemical and biological weapons. And uh, uh, he did that twice with uh, uh, striking uh, assets that belonged to the Assad regime in Syria. And uh, thereby effectively ended uh, Bashar al-Assad's use of sarin gas, uh, 
Um, he, uh, the Trump administration also signed into law a very tough set of sanctions on uh, the, the regime of Bashar al-Assad, we call them the, the Caesar sanctions. They were, uh, passed, uh, they were passed by the House and the Senate, and they were signed by, into law by uh, President Trump. And so because of, and they, the administration also maintained a policy of isolating the Assad regime and dissuaded a number of countries, some Arab countries and some uh, European countries from doing two things. Number one, extending reconstruction funds to the Assad regime, because that's what the Assad regime was hoping to do in 2016, especially following the capture of Aleppo. Uh, they wanted uh, the international funds to flow into Syria, into the coffers of the Assad regime. So uh, the Trump administration froze that. And also, the Assad regime was hoping for normalization of diplomatic relations, for ambassadors to go back to Damascus. And that's also uh, something that the Trump administration put the brakes on. So over the, the, the past four years, we've seen an economic meltdown uh, on the hands of, of uh, the, the Assad regime. The Syrian pound is worth so little now that people have uh, posted uh, images on social media of uh, bank, Syrian banknotes used to roll uh, cigarettes. Uh, members of uh, Assad's loyal base uh, uh, have this time actually come out and uh, expressed uh, deep frustration and have actually some of them uh, took to the streets and protested, uh, others on social media, uh, against a dire economic situation. The regime can't meet the basic needs of, of, its, uh, of its supporters, uh, let alone the, the population uh, writ large. So, uh, yes, both administrations struggled, but uh, for different reasons. Now, the Trump administration, uh, for the Trump administration, the, str the struggle mainly came from the fact that um, it, uh, th there was a lack of uh, a coherent policy, uh, mainly because of lack of effective uh, coordination among the, different, uh, among the different agencies. For example, President Trump came out and announced uh, that American troops were going to be withdrawn from Syria. This, you know, the uh, DOD and the State Department were not on the same page. They did not want that to happen. Uh, they felt that, you know, that uh, undermined the leverage they were using in order to do the other things uh, against the Assad regime and to maintain leverage in in uh, in, in this relationship. Um, so that caused uh, major difficulties. Uh, but again, I just don't want to create the, the perception that they had, um, uh, that both administrations, uh, that things in Syria were the same under both, uh, both administrations. Okay, thank you. For, thank you for that overview. I want to uh, pick up on a word you just used, leverage. Um, in your article, you say, I think correctly, that for the U.S. to be effective in Syria, it needs leverage. And part of that leverage would be cooperation with Turkey in Idlib, in the city of Idlib. Can you explain the situation in Idlib and why is it important and what cooperation with Turkey might mean there? Sure. Yes, indeed, leverage is essential, and without leverage, you can't do uh, you can't do anything in Syria. Uh, if we've learned anything from the past ten years, is that uh, and not just us, not just Syrians struggling against Assad regime, but also UN special envoys, different multiple UN special envoys, uh, all came out when they stepped down and said that. You know, the Assad regime is extremely intransigent. Um, they you just can't reason uh, with, with Bashar al-Assad. Um, so the only way you can make things move forward in Syria is if you have leverage and you can make things happen. 
Um, so one of one of the ways, of course, to maintain leverage is uh, f to maintain the, the existing ceasefire in Idlib. Now, Idlib is a province in uh, north uh, western uh, Syria. Uh, its pre-war population was uh, a few hundred thousand people, but now it's packed with over four million people, most of whom are uh, internally displaced people, meaning people who uh, the Assad regime over the past 10 years uh, has carried out massive sectarian and ethnic cleansing uh, campaigns. So entire towns like the town of Daraya, for example, in a suburb of Damascus, uh, was emptied of its residents. And where did these re residents uh, go? They were dumped uh, into Idlib. So Idlib has uh, IDPs, internally displaced people from, from Homs, from Daraya, from Dara, uh, from all over the map. Um, and so uh, the regime, but it's the last uh, uh, stronghold of those who are opposed to the Assad regime, and the Assad regime would like to capture uh, this province in order to uh, declare a complete and total victory. Uh, so uh, about a year ago, the Assad regime uh, and Russia and Iran and Hezbollah launched a massive military campaign. About a million people were actually displaced from their homes uh, in Idlib. These are people who have already been uh, uh, displaced. Turkey stepped in and uh, basically stopped uh, the campaign, uh, leveraging military instruments. Uh, and they had the backing of the uh, the, uh, the United States uh, and former um, uh, ambassador uh, ambassador James Jeffrey, who was in charge of the Sierra portfolio at the State Department, came out um, in in support of Turkey. Um, uh, the U.S. Uh, envoy or special representative to the United Nations also uh, did the same. So United States backed Turkey's action in Idlib, and thanks. Uh, to that, we uh, we uh, the campaign stopped, and uh, um, those civilians uh, were spared uh, the the worst. Uh, of course, a lot of them did suffer. Uh, like I said, a million people were displaced, but fortunately, the campaign was stopped. Now, if this ceasefire were to collapse, if the Assad regime were to be allowed to resume this uh, this operation, you would see another massive. Uh, refugee crisis, because like I said, you have 4 million people who are packed uh, or crammed into this corner in north uh, uh, northwestern uh, Syria. Turkey already has uh, about 4 million Syrian refugees, 3.5 million, 4 million. And so uh, it, it, I don't think it can take on more refugees. So I, I would assume that you would see uh, what we saw in 2015 with lots of people taking boats and, and braving, uh, braving the oceans. Is it fair to say that a policy goal could be the implementation of UN Security Council Resolution 2254? What would that entail? What does that mean? So this is actually what we're calling for. We're calling for the implementation of the Geneva Communique of 2012 and uh, the uh, and UN Security Council Resolution 2254. Uh, 2254 uh, basically calls for uh, a transition and for an inc for inclusive. Uh, non-sectarian, credible uh, government in Damascus that basically does not commit war crimes and crimes against humanity and that uh, treats people, its citizens uh, uh, fairly uh, for uh, refugees to be allowed to go back in, uh, uh, you know, uh, in, into safe, con safe conditions. So it basically, uh, it boils down to transition. Uh, of course, in order to get there, it calls for free and fair elections under UN supervision. Uh, it calls for drafting a new uh, constitution and for elections, uh, you know, uh, 
uh, per the new constitution. So this is what the this is what it calls for, and this is what we would like to see uh, implemented. Uh, Syria cannot move forward with Bashar al-Assad uh, in in uh, in in power uh, simply because they have killed too many people, uh, and but also because the regime is just not conducive to the regime cannot re, re, uh, reunite. Syrians again. This will never happen. A lot of the millions of refugees who left the country, uh, most of them, the overwhelming majority of them, would not go back with Bashar al-Assad uh, if Bashar al-Assad is still in power, because they simply fled the country uh, because of the mayhem and uh, the carnage that uh, Bashar al-Assad has has created. So that's what two two five four calls for. It calls for transition, uh, and this is what we would like to see happen in Syria. So two two five four, a key part is effectively. A transition away from Assad. Um, during um, the Trump years, America's key diplomats in Syria have been Ambassador James Jeffrey, whom you mentioned a moment ago, as well as Deputy Assistant Secretary Joel Rayburn. Um, you know, as the Trump years come to an end, how would you evaluate their work in Syria? Yeah, so they, they were the, the they, I would say that they were the bright spot uh, the, the past four years because they have uh, I am really, and I know that I speak for a lot of Syrians uh, when I say that I'm deeply grateful for the service of Ambassador James Jeffrey and uh, a special envoy, uh, Joel Rayburn. Over the past four years, they have really uh, gone above and beyond to try and put together a coherent Syria policy and actually uh, do, do their best to implement it. Like they said, like I said, uh, they were uh, hamstrung by a, a lot of challenges. Uh, not they, they didn't they, um, they were not on the same uh, page with the White House uh, all the time. Uh, coordination issues. Uh, uh, sometimes the White House was was unpredictable. But by and large, they were able to maintain uh, economic and diplomatic isolation. Um, which is very important because this has actually uh, uh, created leverage that can be used and should be used to uh, to try and, and move Syria forward uh, beyond uh, beyond the Assad regime. Now, I should also mention that over the past four years, the administration has um, uh, the administration enacted uh, also very 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 tough sanctions against Iran, and Iran, as you know, is Assad's major uh, backer. You have Iran and Russia. Uh, but especially, uh, especially uh, Iran and its proxy uh, Hezbollah. So uh, um, we're really uh, grateful for their service. Uh, they uh, they've done a very good job over the, the the past four years. So, are you suggesting that loosening sanctions on Iran would have ramifications in Syria? Absolutely, and we saw that. I mean, I don't. This is not a hypothetical situation. I don't need to uh, imagine a scenario and, and share it with you. We actually saw that uh, um, four or five uh, years ago when uh, the uh, GCPOA or the nuclear agreement uh, with Iran uh, uh, took place, and as a, as part of that, um, Iran received financial relief, and uh, a lot of their assets were uh, were un unfrozen. Um, and that actually, where did that money go? Uh, a lot of it went to the uh, 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 to the basically the the part of Iran, uh, the Revolutionary Guard, the part of Iran that is uh, prosecuting the war in Syria, and to their militias. Um, and uh, and we so we we Syrians we we paid we paid the price for that. Um, and it, so of course, if you uh, if you were to uh, remove that without addressing uh, the Syria piece, without addressing 
uh, Iranian militias who are wreaking havoc in Yemen, in Iraq, in Lebanon, in Syria, uh, and bragging about it, by, by, by the way, publicly. Uh, you, we, we, we would see the same. We would see the same situation again that we saw when Aleppo fell in 2016. Mohammed, uh, a moment ago, you reviewed the uh, Syria policy of the Trump administration, but now we're about to have a new administration. In uh, actually, uh, um, what uh, in half an hour it will begin. Um, the um, what given the personnel choices in the mm. new administration for its foreign policy. What are your expectations for U.S.-Syria policy? What kind of perspectives and experience do the new members of the team, of the Biden foreign policy team, bring? Mm -hmm. Now, we uh, we would love to see the new foreign policy team and the new administration um, use, uh, maintain, first of all, maintain the leverage that they will be bequeathed. Uh, because, you know, like you said, in half an hour, walking to their offices, they will have um, a lot more leverage uh, than, than we did uh, in, uh, or U.S. officials did in 2016. So we, we would like them to maintain this leverage, to use this leverage, uh, to utilize it in order to create a more coherent Syria policy uh, that can affect the transition called for in 2 to, um, in U.S. Security Council Resolution 2254. Now, uh, some of them during the campaign, like... Um, uh, Biden's nominee uh, uh, for Secretary of State, Anthony Blinken, Tony Blinken, uh, during the campaign actually publicly uh, acknowledged that uh, Syria was, uh, because he was at the time he was deputy, uh, in Obama years he was deputy Secretary of State. Uh, they, he acknowledged that, you know, they, uh, they didn't get Syria right, uh, that huge mistakes were made and that, you know, um, they should be rectified. So we would like them to, we would like to see them make good on those uh, on those uh, promises. Now, uh, we've seen other appointments. Um, I mean, by and large, the foreign policy team. A, a lot of them are people we know, we're familiar with uh, from from the o Obama years, um, and uh, um, so we, like I said, we would like them uh, to make good on the on the on the realization that they made during the campaign. Um, and to uh, basically avoid the mistakes of, of the Obama years. Uh, and we would especially like them to make sure that, uh, that um, when they negotiate with Iran, because that, that's what they said, uh, that, that's the intention that they declared, uh, you know, that Syria be included uh, in, in these negotiations and that Iran doesn't get a, a carte blanche uh, again in Syria to commit war crimes against uh, against civilians. Uh, now, um, people like Tony Blinken, others are uh, very experienced. Um, and so we, we, we do have hope uh, that uh, they will do things uh, uh, differently. Um, other appointments uh, we're not so excited about uh, because of their uh, positions on Syria in the past. Uh, and because they were advocates uh, and folks who always argued against action uh, to uh, protect civilians in Syria. So, um, so it's, 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 it's going to be a mixed bag, but we, we hope that, um, that lessons learned uh, will, be, will be heeded. Sounds like a mixed bag. Um, let me ask um, a final question about one particular set of issues in, uh, in Syria. In your article, you quote Tony Blinken. So presumably the next Secretary of State, uh, where he set expectations for behavior by the Kurdish YPG. Mm -hmm. And these are expectations that the YPG has not met. Um, 
What difficulties does the U.S. relationship with the YPG cause? And can you talk about the human rights situation in YPG-dominated areas of northeastern Syria? Um, so YPG is uh, basically a Kurdish faction that uh, the Obama administration picked as its uh, uh, local uh, proxy or ally um, uh, ground force, basically, in the war against uh, against uh, against ISIS, um, and and this uh, this militia is is an offshoot of uh, basically we think of it as uh, a lot of people think of it think of it as uh, basically the Syrian branch of uh, the Kurdistan Workers Workers Party, the the PKK. That's why they have uh, issues with uh, that's why they have issues with with Turkey. Um, and, and like you said, um, Mr. Blinken wrote an op-ed for the New York Times, uh, I believe it was maybe January 20, uh, um, it was uh, January, January 2007, uh, uh, end of January 2017, and he basically, um, you know, uh, called for uh, called on the YPG to do a number of things in order to qualify for more American support. Uh, sadly, most of the things he called for uh, uh, have yet uh, to happen. Um, so, um, for example, this this specific Kurdish faction um, does not always get along with other Kurdish, uh, with other Kurds in Syria, with other Kurdish factions. With, for let's say, the Kurdish National Council, they were recently in negotiations, but negotiations have stalled. Um, um, they have committed uh, human rights uh, abuses against Kurds, against Arabs. Um, they've bulldozed uh, uh, Arab, you know, some some village, some Arab villages. Um, and uh, you see also you see in their areas uh, uh, they 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 jail um, their critics, uh, be them uh, Kurds, Arabs, or otherwise. Um, so media activists, uh, uh, critics, you also see, and this is something that's been documented by Human, Human Rights Watch and other organizations, you see uh, recruitment of child soldiers. Uh, there's a, a lot of evidence, uh, a lot of interviews were conducted with families um, uh, whose children were recruited. Uh, some, uh, some, and when I say recruited, it's not always... Uh, a campaign of persuasion, like America needs you, or uh, it's uh, uh, some. Um, a lot of the time, they get abducted, especially female minors, and they get shipped off to um, uh, they get shipped off to camps where they get uh, trained and indoctrinated. Um, so, uh, and of course, you know these these folks they don't, don't get along with uh, the Kurdistan, the Peshmerga, America's ally, Kurdish allies in, in Iraq. We recently saw an attack. Uh, from Syria uh, by them against uh, Iraqi Kurds. Uh, they also didn't get along with, with Turkey, like I said. They don't get along with the Syrian opposition. So they're not a force for stability long term. Uh, they have done a good job uh, in, in the fight against ISIS, mainly because of sheer American, uh, sheer American support. But uh, and that's where the dilemma comes. Uh, uh, the dilemma is for American uh, officials. Um, so, uh, so yes, there, there's a record of um, um, human rights abuses against Kurds, Arabs, and other and, and, and other ethnic uh, uh, and other ethnic minorities. And uh, long term, they're not a force for uh, uh, stability. Now, I'd like to clarify that they 
um, uh, the YPG is uh, the force that make uh, that makes up the majority of uh, SDF, the Syrian Democratic Forces. That's a partner that the United States uh, works uh, with in, in Syria against uh, against ISIS. Uh, and so uh, the, U the United States is pretty much the, the, the country that created SDF and uh, it keeps SDF alive. So the U.S. does have tremendous leverage that, that it can and should use in order to get the YPG to uh, diversify its ranks, to be more inclusive, to uh, uh, be more tolerant of, of dissent, especially, you know, uh, and, and to... Um, actually be more accepting of, of other Syrian Kurdish leaders uh, um, and, and, and others as well. Thank you. At the very least, it sounds like any unquestioning support for the YPG on the part of the United States would be inconsistent with American interests in, in human rights. But I'm sure that's a longer story uh, in a complex part of the world. There are many other aspects of Syria that you address in your article, which is available again at www.hoover.org caravan. Thank you, Muhammad, for the discussion. And I thank our listeners as well. Please watch for an upcoming caravan podcast soon when my Hoover colleague Cole Bunzel will interview David Rundell on Saudi Arabia and U.S. policy. David is a former U.S. diplomat with years of experience in the kingdom and the author of the new book, Vision or Mirage, Saudi Arabia at the Crossroads. You won't want to miss it. Please subscribe to the podcast and stay tuned. This podcast has been a production of the Hoover Institution, where we advance ideas that define a free society. For more information about our work and to hear more of our podcasts or see our video content, please visit hoover.org.